What we really wanted to tell was the story that people don't know, the story of the people behind it and the love they had for each other and the um, activism, really, that gave birth to this show. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director Marilyn Agrello takes us behind the scenes of her new documentary, Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street. Inspired by the book by Michael Davis, Street Gang takes us inside the minds and hearts of the artists, writers, producers, and educators who created Sesame Street, revealing not only how these visionary creators changed our world, but also what it was like to be at the center of a cultural and social phenomenon. Street Gang was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films by presenting screenings of documentaries, as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to Street Gang, Ms. Agrello's filmography includes the feature film An Invisible Sign, the documentary feature Mad Hot Ballroom, and episodes of Sesame Street, The Electric Company, and the untold stories of motherhood. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Agrello spoke with director Annetta Marion about filming Street Gang, how we got to Sesame Street. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Good to see you again, Marilyn. Well, first of all, just one more giant round of applause to everyone in this room, and especially Marion. This is the third time I've seen the movie, and I love it more every single time. So, thank you. Thank you. I wanted to start off just drawing a kind of a through line from from Mad Hot Ballroom, your previous movie, because they're both uh, such quintessential New York stories. And if you could just, I'm sure there's something to that. I'd love to hear what you uh, have to say. Thank you for saying that. Honestly. They're both amazing stories about people in New York and the power and the creativity here. But really what they both signify to me that sort of unites them for me is uh, they both talk about the power of art and the power of creativity and what that can do to transform the lives of children and the lives of all of us. And uh, that uh, what what you saw on the screen and and this group of people, what they were able to do was born of the time that this all transpired in. The the 60s were such a tumultuous moment in this country and society was changing and everyone's mind was opening up and the civil rights movement was in full gear and the Vietnam War and there was so much turmoil. And out of that, this group of artists and educators and activists decided to create something to really make a difference, and they revolutionized television. Sesame Street was the first mixed-race cast on television, the first time that you saw people of color coexisting with white people in the same neighborhood and living together without even mentioning it, really. And all of these things that were said on this show were so monumental and it sort of, all of us that made this movie, our minds were continuously blown by the fact that a show that was aimed at 
three and four year olds broke so much ground. Within months of Sesame Street being on the air, movie stars, uh, sports figures, all kinds of prominent people were knocking on the doors to be included and to be on this show, a show for preschoolers. It's beautiful. Um, the one line at the very beginning of the show it always always um, really gets me. It's what television would be if television wanted to love children as opposed to sell to them. Like that gets me to the, in the heart every single time. And it, it's also just, it's a great counterbalance to the world today too. You know, when it's all just about, you know, everything's monetized, Selling. monetized, monetized. Yeah. Um, children's programming at that time was almost completely created in order to sell toys, to sell cereal, to market to children. And um, these these people completely did two things. They did, they made a show that was not about that at all, but they used the tricks of Madison Avenue and the tricks of advertisers to teach. And uh, I think everybody has jingles. I, I know so many jingles from <laughs> when I was a, five years old sitting on the floor. Where's the beef? <laughs> yes. And they recognized this, uh, these educators who saw the power, the power of television. It could really be a force for good. That was quite extraordinary. So how did this project come to you? This is a great story. I love this story. Um, I, on occasion, would direct at, on Sesame Street little segments for the show. And I uh, directed a small music video with Ernie, and it was so thrilling. And, and after Marilyn's we were, friend Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> after we wrapped, I posted a picture of uh, Ernie and myself on Facebook, and Trevor Crafts, who is someone that I've known for 20 years or more, uh, saw me with Ernie on Facebook, and he had just optioned the book by Michael Davis called Street Gang, The Complete History of Sesame Street. And he was looking for a director for this documentary project. And he called me. And so uh, this is how this project came to me. And uh, I just love talking about that because the show really brought us together to make a movie about the show, um, which is great. That's good. Uh, good tip. Post on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so we... You utilize, you know, present day interviews and interviews from the past and, or, you know, all different kinds of things. But where, the hell did you get that behind the scenes? There was so much of it and it was amazing. So curious about that story. There's a lot of footage in this film that is um, shot on the show. And it was um, actually shot by a member of the crew in the early 80s, a man by the name of Victor DiNapoli, who I believe was an art director on the show. And his idea uh, was to make a documentary about the making of Sesame Street and what it was like behind the scenes. And so from 1981 to 1983, he shot a ton of beautiful 16 millimeter footage. And um, what I love about the footage is how free everyone is because he was one of them. He was not an outsider that came in. He was someone that was part of the family. 
And so he captured such intimate, personal, free, loving material. And we were so blessed to get, I think, 10 to 12 hours of it uh, for Holy the shit. film. And, and hardly anyone had seen any of it. Uh, little bits had been used in compilation reels that the Sesame Workshop put together, but tiny little bits. We got the bulk of this uh, amazing, intimate, personal material. Yeah, it was so clearly taken by one of them because no one was, you know, no one was shying away. No, no they were just like, yeah, that's, that's there, he, there, he, there he goes again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which is great. The, my two other favorite pieces of archival are the original Muppets, the late night music videos, you know, music videos sort of, sorts of footage. I'd never seen that until I saw your movie. That's amazing. And then also the um, the public service announcement that oh yeah that inspired John Stone's whole look and feel of the of the movie or Sesame Street. One day, our amazing archival producer Rich Remsberg, who is sitting here with us tonight. Oh woohoo! One day, Rich called us and said, "We have the Holy Grail." And this was the public service announcement that we had been searching for, um, which was about send your kid to the ghetto. And um, we had heard John Stone's interview where he cites this moment where he watches this public service announcement and it inspires him to, this is what I'm going to, this is how this show's going to look. We're going to put it on a New York City street and uh, this piece of footage was so elusive. And I think nine months later, the Holy Grail came to us. And um, it, it's just so incredible to watch this inspiration for what Sesame Street looks like. Hats off, Rich, because I think John telling the story was one thing, but I think I wouldn't have actually gotten yeah. it in the way that I do get it now without seeing that footage. So yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was... Uh, that was quite something. Yeah, just super, super favorite piece. Um, so John, um, John Stone. I don't, I didn't know much about him until I saw your movie. Not that I am an extra special expert on Sesame Street, but can you talk a little bit about a little bit more about him? Starting to talk about uh, making this movie, we had a lot of conversations about. You know, this is a vast story. There's so many characters. It, it, it spans uh, so many years, and two decisions were made right away. One was to limit the time frame to like the first 20 years or so. The other was to tell the story through a very uh, limited number of characters, and we chose three. Joan Gans Cooney, who's the woman who first had the idea. Jim Henson, of course, who brought us the Muppets and... John Stone. And John Stone was in in so many ways the most intriguing one because hardly anyone knows who this man is. And he conceived of the look, the feel. He brought Jim Henson in. Uh, so much of this came from John Stone. And for me, he's the emotional heart of this film. And so he became the center of it. And you know, as I was working on this film, I would always, you know, I would talk about it. It's hard not to talk about this project. It's so uh, <laughs> delightful. 
But people invariably would say, oh, yeah, Sesame Street. Jim Henson started Sesame Street because that's what people assume. Everyone knows the Henson uh, dynasty. Everyone knows the Muppets. And um, so for many reasons, it was really, really important to tell the story of John Stone. Well, you did it beautifully. <laughs> um, and I'm going to pimp you out on this. Didn't t- Can you tell this what, can you tell what, his daughter said to you after they saw the movie? Oh, yeah. I just had some inside track secret there, but here we go. As you saw, his daughters, Polly and Kate, uh, were the connection to John, and they were um, so generous in, in talking about him. And Kate's daughter had never met her grandfather. John died of ALS in um, 1997, I believe. And his granddaughter had never met him. And after the film debuted at Sundance, she got in touch. And she also wrote me a note saying, I feel like I met my grandfather. Is that amazing? Which was so moving because, I mean, really, I've, I've not seen a lot about John Stone or heard his name. And um, the man is a giant. And it was so gratifying to know that his granddaughter sort of knew him now, too. Uh, and it was really because of um, this amazing footage and people talking about him mm-hmm. and honoring him. That has had to feel so good to hear. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, so Joan is amazing oh. as well, like pioneer, not just TV pioneer, educational pioneer. Joan Gans Female Cooney, executive, everything. Joan, Gan, Joan Gans Cooney is a giant in the world of television and the world of broadcast. I mean, women struggle today to find a footing and to uh, be recognized for their talents. Imagine in the 60s, she was a fledgling television executive. She was a producer of documentary films. She had a very strong sense of justice and social justice. And when um, Lloyd Morissette the man from the Carnegie Corporation uh, had dinner at her house and posed that question. This was like the question that launched everything. And the question was, Joan, do you think television can be used to teach? And she heard that question and knew that this was her calling. And uh, from there, she became a powerhouse. But she... Uh, would not allow them to take this position away from her. This was her project. This was her baby. And she uh, she took it and owned it. And we all owe so much to Joan Gans Cooney. I loved what she said uh, about they didn't want a woman in charge, but it was all in her head. So they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't that's do it right. without her. So yeah, that's a note to everyone. Become indispensable <laughs> and then ask for what you deserve. <laughs> yeah. Joan, Joan, John, and Jim. There's many uh, J's in the story of Sesame <laughs> Street, but those three J's are uh, amazing. Amazing. So um, tell me... What what is the most fun you had making this movie? Because I know it was a long journey. So is there a particular moment? A, a few things. Interviewing uh, the people that were a part of the early moments on the show. Interviewing these people 
was so moving and so uh, enlightening because as they would tell their stories, and they're all, by the way, at least in their 70s and 80s, Joan's in her 90s, to open up these memories of this journey that they took that was so singular in the history of television um, was incredible. It was incredible to live uh, these stories and hear their words and hear their memories. And uh, so that was very moving and the most fun, all of us in the office. Can you imagine that our job was to sit and watch (laughs) clips of the Muppets every day (laughs) and um, going through all of that material and the daring humor that they had Children's television isn't like that today. It was uh, a moment in time where this group of, I'll call them this, this group of geniuses um, unleashed something so fresh and so uh, bold and um, to be the privilege of, the privilege for all of us of telling this story is, is really something. That's great. Um, I just have one more question before I think we are going to open it up to questions from the audience. Um, so I know there the the let it be lawsuit. <laughs> I, I love the part of the movie. Um, there's actually a, a another piece of that story from five million to something else. I I think. I think that lawsuit was settled for like fifty dollars. Um, <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, yes, they took such liberties. Uh, Chris Surf, who is uh, his special, many many talents, but one of them was to make parodies of songs and make songs that were very much like the original. And um, you know, the Apple label did come after Sesame Street, but for a second, it. How can you? Yeah really go after Sesame yeah. Street and that was it's not a good for, look no <laughs> <laughs> no matter no, how do you no, no, no matter how, how you slice it it's not a good look um okay so uh, does anyone have any questions so, so the question is um what material what arch what archival material was being searched for but didn't end up being found unlike the PSA that ended up being found you know 18 months later or whatever so much Trevor knows something you know, Sesame Street was recognized as such a special thing that was being unleashed on television that even though it was going to be on PBS, public television, the networks promoted it because they saw and they recognized that this was something so valuable that was coming down the pike. And um, Mr. the episode about Goodbye, Mr. Hooper, that aired on Thanksgiving. And they aired it on Thanksgiving because uh, they knew that this was a day when families would be together, children would be watching with their parents and their grandparents, and it would be such a special thing to share. And that was also promoted on network television. The things that occurred then don't really happen now. This camaraderie, the government giving $8 million to this startup because they recognized the value of what these people were going to put out there and that networks were promoting these special moments that were going to happen on Sesame Street to the public. It would have been fantastic to find uh, some of those things, but 
unfortunately, uh, back in the early days of television, as many of you know, they would tape over things. Oh, it's heartbreaking. And in a way that doesn't occur now. And so, so much of that material has been lost. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for saying that. And, you know, what you're saying reminds me of something that's, uh, we all felt, all the collaborators and all of us that made this film, this was a daunting responsibility because Sesame Street is so ingrained in people's hearts. They've carried the memories that they have of this show throughout their whole life. And how do you take something that is so universally in people's hearts and minds and do it justice? It was very, it was a very big responsibility and a daunting one. And um, we left so many things on the cutting room floor, as you can imagine, so many uh, stories that we couldn't tell. And we really try to, yes, show clips of the show, show the Muppets, show these beautiful, magical moments. But a lot of that stuff can be found if you look for it online or in other ways. What we really wanted to tell was the story that people don't know, the story of the people behind it and the love they had for each other and the um, activism really that gave birth to this show. We were surprised at how much we didn't know about Sesame Street. And these are the things that we wanted to really tell the world. Yes, uh, we went to the um, Sesame Workshop and they have uh, a room which is the archive and there's many, many, many thousands of tapes and things and some of them were labeled do not use <laughs> or you know labeled in ways that were, were very intriguing to us and of course uh you know they kept all the outtakes it wasn't ever really intended for air but um i think that Sesame Workshop was okay with the way we used it because it was just such a revealing um, moment to show like the joy that they all had. But yeah, the outtakes were amazing and there's plenty more. <laughs> yeah, they, they had to love how you use them because it was just like the cherry on top of, of, yeah. of happiness. It wasn't like, oh, look, they screwed this up. It was yeah. the opposite. It was, it was the delight and joy in that. So yeah, they had to have liked it. Back there. We started to cut the film in, um, not in sequence, and it, it started to make sense to um, tell it more in the order in which things happened because everything built upon it, you know, upon what happened before. I would say the biggest change um, after that was whittling it down <laughs> from the, I don't know, three and a half, four hour film that we felt we couldn't lose a minute of. It was all so precious to us. And um, as with all these things, especially in the world of, well, in all worlds, but in the unscripted world, uh, we were so enamored of so many things and felt like we couldn't lose very much and whittling it down to its basics was uh, the biggest change. And we did that being guided by the principle of following these three characters 
and the journey of, of the makers of Sesame Street in an emotional way, telling the story of how they gave, uh, gave all of their energy, their emotion, sometimes at the cost of their own families, you know, telling the stories of uh, the love they had, the camaraderie they had, all that, all that stuff that is not really on the screen, but underneath it all. It was not an easy task to take it down to this length, but. But you did it. We did it. I think there was a question. Yeah, there you go. Yes. It makes sense to me. I'm so happy that you asked about the composer. Oh, my God. Joe Raposo is a, a, a full-length documentary film on his own. He was <laughs> a, a fantastic composer, um, very passionate, very prolific. He, uh, The stories that his son Nick told about him, that was such an amazing interview. And, um, you know, Nick would tell stories about how they would be in the car going away on the weekend and they could never play the radio in the car because his father was always composing in his head. He was just this musical genius and his standards were so high and the sophistication that he brought to the show, world-class musicians and completely uh, as, as if making entertainment for adults. Um, Also, Another piece of rare archive was this interview with Joe Raposo sitting at the piano. Uh, That, to my knowledge, has never been aired anywhere. And it was towards the end of his life. Um, But he gave this beautiful interview talking about his process and his love and his belief in what they all did for children. And that was uh, golden. He's an amazing, amazing character. Thank you so much for bringing him up. So I think that's, I think we have to leave now. Um, I got the high sign. Um, but Marilyn, thank you. And no more. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from our documentary series, check out episode 313 featuring director Morgan Neville discussing his documentary feature, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 